Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose a noteworthy new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week, we have two guests, Kai Schiller and Christopher Young. They are the co-authors of The 1972 Munich Olympics and the Making of Modern Germany, published by the University of California Press. The 1972 Summer Olympics in Munich are most widely known for the kidnapping and murder of 11 members of the Israeli team by the Black September terrorist group. One of the aims that Kai and Chris had in researching and writing their history of the 72 games was to look beyond the notorious events of September 5th and to view the Munich Olympics instead within the context of German history in the late 60s and early 70s. Of course, they do discuss the terror attacks and the response of West German authorities, and we talk about their approach in the interview. But the bulk of their book looks at how the organizers in Munich and West Germany sought to craft the games in such a way as to present a new image of the German nation. In the lead-up to 1972, the planners had to contend with social and economic modernization in West Germany, as well as both the legacies of the Nazi years and the radicalism of the late 1960s. According to Kai and Chris, the organizers handled these challenges adeptly and put on an event that would be a model for other Olympic hosts. Unfortunately, their success would be undone by the attacks at the Olympic Village. This is a work of sports history at its most accomplished. Kai and Chris used the 72 games to explore a range of topics in political, social, and cultural history, and their research is nothing short of exhaustive. The book has justly received much acclaim, and it was a pleasure to speak with them about their work. So let's turn to the interview. We have on the program today the co-authors of the 1972 Munich Olympics and the Making of Modern Germany. So from Durham in the UK, we have Kai Schiller. Kai, welcome to the program. Hello. And on the line from Berlin, we have Christopher Young. Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us on the program. So I'll start by asking about your respective backgrounds and your particular interest in sports and history. And with both of you, sports history was something that you came to after you had established yourselves in other research areas. And Chris, I'll start with you since your work, your early research work, is probably furthest removed from the 1972 Olympics and that you've uh, done research in medieval German language and literature. So I'll ask you, well, first, as an Englishman, what brought you to study uh, German language and literature? And then what brought you to contemporary sports history? Well, that's an interesting question. I was I was brought up in Belfast and I went to uh, school in Belfast and then on to study um, at the University of Cambridge. In England, uh, I had two fantastic teachers at school in modern languages and French and in German. And I think the very basic answer to your first question, which is why I came to study German language and literature, is because of these teachers. Um, I had a great uh, gap year after school where I came to Berlin, where I'm currently sitting uh, as I'm talking to you now, and and really just enjoyed um, the people, the language, the lifestyle, um, and and the culture in general. So I, I sort of slipped into that almost by accident, but but motivated by great teachers at school. Um, and then uh, after my PhD, which was in medieval German, that's a long story, which we'll not get into. I got a job teaching medieval German. Um, uh, at the University of Cambridge. And, and what, what's interesting about the field of modern languages these days is that it has really opened up in the last 20 years so that um, we have colleagues teaching all forms of culture, not just, not just literary culture. Um, body culture, dance culture, movement culture have become very popular. So the way it sort of opened up for me in many respects to follow a, follow a passion that combine my love of sport and my love of German culture. So that's to cut a long story short how we've ended up 
at this particular juncture, which is a sort of strange one, which leaves me as a medieval Germanist <laughs> by, by day and a sports scholar by night almost. And Kai, your early work was on uh, German-Jewish refugee scholars and intellectual history. So how did you end up in contemporary sports history? Well, I think, um, yeah, well, that's, again, sort of, uh, sort of rather complicated story. But I think if you want to sort of cut it down to the basics, I think um, uh, I didn't really think of myself as being so much interested in sports history than being interested in the history of my hometown, Munich. And uh, having experienced uh, the 1972 games as a kid uh, made me always wonder about the background uh, of, of these Olympics and um, the story that, you know, that went into them, um, the uh, preparations, etc., etc. So this is basically for me a sort of uh, this is basically for me a history of my sort of hometown. And uh, the further you're removed from it, um, the more interesting, in a way, it gets. And you think you can sort of uh, shed a new light on a story from a, from a distance, basically from the distance of having moved as a scholar um, to the UK. And then, like Chris, you know, history uh, has developed in many directions, and cultural history has become a sort of very uh, interesting field. And intellectual history, in a way, was a sort of focus on philosophy and uh, scholarship in itself seems rather limited to me, and cultural history and the history of sports included included in cultural history seems a very interesting field, and I think that made me go in that direction. So I'll ask then how you both came together to write this this particular book. Again, like many things, uh, this was chance. We were both, um, we'd both embarked on, on uh, similar projects looking at the Munich Olympics, but without knowing each other. And uh, as fate would have it, we were sitting at the next table from one another, the next desk in uh, the Munich State Archive. I think it was towards the end of Kai's visit, or that one particular visit, and it was at the beginning of mine. So it was a, it was a, uh, a very lucky uh, uh, chance that brought us both together on that day. And I think I think it was Kai had spotted that I was reading files that he'd been reading the week before, or something like that. And I noticed this chap looking across. Uh, rather more often than he probably should have been doing in archive. Um, and then, and then asked, then, then, uh, asked me all of a sudden if I was, if I too was interested in the 1972 Munich Olympics. And I think I said something like, we better go outside and talk. And that's really how we, we came to, to be working together. And in, in retrospect, it was, it was a godsend because with the massive material that we, we managed to collect between us, um, we might still have been writing the book today had we not been able to divide it up between us. Well, that makes it all the more remarkable. And I, and I was going to ask the question of how how you both went about researching and writing the book. And and this is one of the marvels of the book that there are no there are no clear markers of a division of labor. The bibliography shows that you each published individual articles related to the to the project, but within the book itself, the writing style and the depth of research are uniform throughout. And so I was under the impression that you guys had known each other for a long time, and then decided uh, together to come to this project, not that you had found each other in the archive and, and then made a co-authored project. So let me ask that. How did you carry out the work of, then after you found each other in the archive, how did you carry out the work of doing the research and writing? Well, the one main thing I would say here is that we had actually meeting very late in the day. We were both, we were both about to start writing pretty soon after that. We both got a year's leave, or near a year's leave lined up. We we're both at the end of the major piece of research. And the advantage there, I think, um, is that although if you count up the man up that, that went into that, you might think that's a waste of time. Um, we had seen a lot of the same material. That, that established itself fairly quickly when we, when we began talking to each other. Now, if, if, you, if you plan a project uh, rather forensically and surgically from, from the beginning, knowing that you're going to do a collaborative project, the danger of that is that is that the tasks and the, and the and the areas that you look at become discrete, so that author A hasn't really seen much of the documents that author B has seen, uh, and therefore you've got to take on trust what the other person is saying. Whereas in our case, we had both seen uh, by accident really um, an awful lot of the same material, and we're both becoming to form our own conclusions about it. So I think, in a way, having sort of doubled up on a lot of the work um, became a great advantage to us. But maybe Kai will have something else to. To say on that, yeah, I think I think the, the big point here is that um, 
as Chris said, that we had seen much of the material um, uh, separately and had our own ideas about how we would shape it and then sort of um, got together, produced drafts um, uh, of, of individual chapters, criticized these drafts, worked over those again, shortened them, um, gave them a specific shape um, and worked through them basically together. Although I, I must say without Chris sort of giving the whole thing a final sort of absolute polish, uh, I think the book would not read as well as we think actually it does. So um, it was a, a, a very interesting, very fruitful um, a, a sort of a, a project and a, a process in a way, which also wasn't easy because in some ways, you know, occasionally you think you um, you got the right position on a specific uh, issue in question, and then you sort of have to debate it. But, but basis with your with your with your partner with your, with your co-author and then there's a conflict and you argue but I think um, the, the, the secret of this was actually it was getting better through this process all the time through the work and through the, the I mean without wanting to praise us too much but I think um, this, we actually benefited from each other's perspectives also from Chris being a sort of sports scholar and me being more a sort of a, a historian who tried to um, uh, see the, the games more with, within the sort of context of German history. I think Chris had a stronger focus on sports history and bringing together those two perspectives and obviously a lot of other perspectives as well, such as, you know, what are we going to say about the terrorist attack? Really, that's just one example. That just really helped us to, um, to shape and to, to, to fruitfully collaborate. Well, that allows me to turn to the subject of the book, and I'll ask first about this this major theme which comes out in the title, The Making of Modern Germany. And, and as you were getting at there, Kai, the 72 games are most widely known for the terrorist attacks on the Israeli athletes, and you do discuss that event in the final chapter of the book. But the focus of the book is really how the games fit into the context of German history from the 1960s to the early 1970s. And as you explain in the book, this period was, for West Germans, somewhat uncertain. You use the terms in, in your opening chapter, use the terms sensitivity and ambiguity. So uh, can you tell us about what were the culture, cultural and social issues in West Germany at this time, from the, from the 60s into the early 70s? Well, I think... Um we called, we, we called, we called Germany as being, and the games also as being sort of caught between the past and the future. And this is what we mean by this sort of ambivalence. Because on the one hand, um, the issue of the German past overshadowing these games. On the other, there is a sort of, uh, a belief in, uh, in modernization and technocracy and the doable and the planable. And, um, uh, the, the, the games are sort of situated in this ambivalence. This is an interesting period of time because um, when the games are actually, when, they, when Munich applies for the games, we have a conservative government, then we have a grand coalition government between the conservatives and the social democrats, and then in 1969, we have a social democrat government. So also there's a sort of ambivalence in the sort of political context from the sort of conservative to a, to a social democrat uh, government. Then there's 1968, which is this major issue, which in Germany has a has a special sort of dimension because of the legacy um, of the Nazi past. And the games in many ways are sort of allow, allow you to shed light of these specific areas in German society. They reflect these areas of German society in the late 1960s. And at the same time, they also produce something new, a vision um, of the modern Germany um, that, we, um, that we actually wanted to work out. You also talk about at the beginning of the book that uh, uh, the Germans had a great attachment to the Olympics throughout the throughout the history of the games. You have this great line in your opening chapter. I'll quote it: "The Olympics of the modern era might have been invented by a Frenchman, modeled on English sporting ideals, and celebrated for the first time in their ancient home in Greece. But no other country took to the games with such philosophical zeal." As Germany, end of quote. And so I'll ask, why were the Germans drawn to the Olympics more more than any other European nation? Okay, that's uh, that's a complicated question, but it's it's a question that uh, was very important for an understanding of uh, a key dimension to the planning of the games. Because whilst 
uh, the city was important, the, the state of Bavaria and the Federal Republic was important. The, that other extra dimension that needs to be thought through and included in any, in any thinking through of the games is the world of sport. And it's not just on the level of sports functionaries who, who were, who were members of the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, or who were members of, of the international federations, all of, all of which played an important role in, in getting the games and, and putting them on. But also a certain sort of philosophical stance to the games. And that was precisely what we were trying to get at with that, with that sentence. It just needs to be sort of unpackaged a little bit. The, the reason, the reason I came to really to, um, to write this, uh, this book or get going on this project was when looking at the first page of the, of the Olympic report, which is, uh, runs into several thousand pages. And it's the first page that, that laid out the reasons why Germany wanted the Olympics. And I really couldn't believe my eyes because everything that Kai has said about Germany re-presenting uh, re itself on the world stage was absolutely true and it was my expectation of these games when I came just to flick through the report um, for another purpose, as it turned out. And and there on the first page, they say that, that um, Germans could, or that the, the, the Olympic organizers could count on the support of broad uh, broad swathes of the public for two reasons. One was that Germany had a great pedigree uh, going back to 1936 and beyond, which rather shocked me seeing that on, on page one. And also because um, although the French had uh, although the French had reinvented the modern Olympics, it was Germans through their archaeologists who had actually dug up Olympia in, in the 19th century. So they're, they're writ large on the first page of this report for a games that were meant to be repre representing a new, uh, more modest Germany with these great claims to Olympic heritage in a quite, in a quite striking, quite striking way. In order to, to really get it, um, why the games are important, you need to, to think a little bit about German sports history, which had I think this is the way we, we eventually explained it in a, in a fairly brief way in the book, um, because it does need quite a lot of explanation, unfortunately. Um, but, but essentially, German sport in the 19th century was divided between British sport. This is, this is sort of reducing it, rather, but British sport, which was imported, and Turnen and gymnastics on the other level. And there were great ideological battles between representatives of both forms of physical culture. And the Olympic Games at that point really represented the pinnacle of world sport, modern sport in the, in the British mode and in the internationalist mode and sense. And so uh, I think due, to cut a long story short, due to the ideological battles that went on over German body, body culture and physical culture in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the, the Olympics took on a... Um, a very special place uh, for those who supported uh, modern sports. So they, without that sort of tension in either the United States or without that sort of tension in Great Britain, which didn't have a great gymnastics tradition, you don't then get the attachment uh, to the modern Olympic movement in the way that you do in Germany. You both have mentioned already the 1936 Olympics, and your book has an entire chapter that discusses the legacy of the Berlin Games and how the Munich organizers dealt with that legacy. And one thing that you point out is that while Americans and British scholars typically condemn the 36 Games as the so-called Nazi Olympics, within West Germany at the time and within the International Olympic Committee, the 36 Games were viewed quite differently. So could you talk about that, please? First of all, I think it's a relatively recent development that 36 has also been very, very negatively by historiography. And the first book on the 1972, sorry, on the 1936 Olympics actually came out in 1972. And this is the first sort of um, scholarly treatment which really looked at the sort of abuse of the games in greater detail. Um, so even at the time, um, there was a sort of, sort of uh, there wasn't necessarily a totally negative um, a, a ne negative perspective on these games um, as yet. At the same time, within the circles of the IUC, the 1936 game, Olympic Games were seen as perhaps the first really modern game. The first games were the first time that the Olympic Games became a kind of mega event, perfectly organized. On a super grand scale, in a super grand stadium. Yes, there was 1932 Los Angeles, but um, uh, Berlin 1936 really topped it. I think under 
the, the sort of conditions of dictatorship perfectly organized. Also something that um, uh, Germany was kind of known for to be able to perfectly organize. So 1936 as a sort of uh, as a foil was always present also in 1972, at least with regards to the um, uh, International Olympic Committee. Moreover, there were obviously personal continuities. Um, uh, you know that we, we describe, I think, that every, we explain that every Brundage had been present in, 19, in 1936 and actually done all he could to stop the American boycott movement uh, against these games um, and uh, thought that 1936 was a great success. Also, Robert Nazi, simply it was an anti um, and uh, so, um, in some ways, um, in order to get the game, the Munich organizers had to cater to um, every Brundage's sympathy for a special kind of Germany, which of course wasn't a Germany in 1972. So, um, within the IUC, um, there, were, there were important voices who, um, who thought that 1936 was, was a grand success, and that 1936 was actually a good reason to give the game to uh, Germany again, whereas in Germany at the time, I think there was an increasing awareness, but it wasn't really until later that um, uh, 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 that a much more critical perspective on, on the 1936 game was developed by historians, by historians and the general public alike. I, th I think what I, what I would add to to the way that the, uh, to what you said, Kai, about how 36 was dealt with. Um, was really, really the sheer double think of it all. Um, that was, that was quite a, a tricky chapter to write because, um, in its, in its sort of self projection and in the way that the games have come to be understood, um, almost, almost really as a shorthand, 1972 is, is everything that 1936 wasn't, or 1936 was everything that 1972 wasn't. Um, so 1936 was bombastic and militaristic. So 1972 was not bombastic and not militaristic and modest and light and friendly. And, and, and as we show in the book, I mean, all these things, all these things are true, but there are, there are, um, uh, some, some overlaps, for instance, um, and maybe we'll come on to talk about this on, on the design element, um, in a little bit, but there are striking similarities, certainly not in ideology, but in technique used in the way that the, the games, uh, landscape gardening and, 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 and the stadium, uh, the whole Olympic site was, was, was designed, which, which was strange, but, but also really uh, on a more fundamental level, right the way through the way the German authorities, sports functionaries, and population uh, dealt with 1936 was 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 just really strange. You know, on on some instances things were were, were absolutely fine um, uh, and taken really as, as as innocent, and in other instances they weren't. And and, and these get these stories get really and narratives get really quite complex around figures such as such as Max Schmeling, the the, the boxer who had uh, in the run-up to the 1936 games, been instrumental in the, the U.S. team not boycotting the 1936 games. He was a key sort of ambassador for the German regime at that point. But of course, um, Max Schmeling undergoes his own sorts of transformations in, in post-war Germany. Uh, it helped that he fell out with the Nazis after after losing to to Joe Lewis. Um, but he he is called up precisely as a as an ambassador. Uh, for the 1972 games, and who does he find himself being an ambassador beside? But Jesse Owens. Now, Jesse Owens, you might think is is also a, a, is a very clear, clearly obvious sort of person to pick if you want to if you want to represent a new Germany and show some some sort of international forgiveness. But it, at the time, Jesse Owens had become embroiled in rather in rather strange and, and interesting ways with with the the Black Power uh, movement and become rather become an enemy of the of the thirty of the six sorry the sixty eight uh, athletes uh, um, who had shown the part of Black Power salute and and Owens had, had rather strangely aligned himself with Avery Brundage of all people Avery Brundage the great anti Semite as we as we show in the book. Um, who, who was responsible as well for taking the U.S. to the 1936 game. So the minute, what struck me with, with the 36 theme was the minute you scratched the surface, the minute 
uh, more so than in, I think in any other part of the book, that you're involved in all sorts of complicated, contradictory narratives, which which involve quite a bit of untangling. And once they're untangled, uh, they were quite difficult to sort of put together again in a way that showed their complexity, and also were, were, uh, in a way that um, made the reader be able to read them read them straight. So thirty six was immensely complicated, and and is still immensely complicated today. I mean, the, the international press um, we're awaiting the arrival of the Pope here in Berlin, and the international press has, has gone a bit wild in advance about the fact that, that the, the Pope is appearing uh, at the Olympic Stadium. Now, it was fine for the World Cup final to take place then in 2006. <laughs> it was fine for the World Athletics Championships to take place then a couple of years ago. It's not fine for the Pope to be in there uh, giving a mass. So it's, it's still alive. So one other thing that the book emphasizes is the forward-looking technocratic vision of the planners. And there's a phrase you have in... in the early part of the game, uh, the early part of the book, that the games were to be a quote concrete utopia, and it's actually someone else's phrase that you borrow. But this was particularly apparent in your chapter on the design of the Munich Olympics, which in, in which you cover everything from the stadium to the signage. So, picking up on on what you were just hinting at, Chris, what were the planners, the designers, and the architects seeking to accomplish with the design of the Munich Games? So I'll pass this one over to Kai because this is um, this is an area of his expertise. I think what they aimed at was a sort of uh, Gesamtkunstwerk in a sort of Wagnerian mm -hmm. sense that you have, but but obviously with a very different me message. Something light, something without any pathos, something friendly, something reflecting a kind of modernized modern Germany. And um, uh, there were a few people, few key uh, people who actually were responsible for this. So one, obviously. Willy Daumer, who was the chief organizer, but then obviously in his choice of, of choice of architect, um, uh, Günther Bienisch, and um, who built the stadium and the famous roof, and uh, Uttel Eicher, who was um, the chief um, designer of the game. And um, as those two persons, uh, personalities, Bienisch and Eicher, who collaborated very, very closely, in presenting a vision that, in some ways, as Chris already mentioned, sort of in, in terms of its methodology, in terms of the way it was achieved, has a kind of sort of similarity to Berlin. Um, there was uh, also a garden architect, a third person, Günther Cimek, who we um, explain was actually trained by the, by the garden architect who had done the 1936 um, uh, uh, landscape and uh, had actually learned from him the methodology in order to achieve certain effects. Now, these three people, in particular Eicher and Benisch, the architect and the designer, the designer and the architect, um, were uh, responsible for presenting uh, a, 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 a light vision through color, through posters, through signage, through the lightness of the roof, which was also meant to symbolize maybe the transparency of German democracy, everything that 1936 Berlin had not been, yeah? through the way the, the, uh, the landscape was modulated, through the way um, there were no, no geometrical axes in terms of the pathways through the Olympic Park, through the um, attempt of using, of trying to uh, avoid any sense of, of, of monumentality, Trying to keep make things look artificially smaller than they were. For instance, we have the famous example of an Olympic mountain, which was up to just a, just a hill um, based on the debris of of the bombings of the Second World War, which was made to, made to look artificially higher so the stadium would look smaller, or the stadium was integrated integrated in, in into the earth um, just to make it look smaller, despite the fact that it actually held eighty. It looked rel relatively small compared to say um, the Berlin Stadium, despite the fact that uh, it also fits um, eighty thousand spectators. So a lot of effort went into actually um, designing a space that would then eventually become uh, uh, the Olympic or the space for those games, and to try to create an atmosphere of freedom, of lightness, of um, relaxation, um, which then could also be used after the games for the benefit of the German population, uh, or, or the, of the Munich population. Actually, the Olympic Park is one of the most used um, free spaces for leisure leisure spaces um, uh, in in West Germany. Um, 
So a lot of effort actually went into this and to present uh, a very positive image of Germany through the uh, through the design of the game. Yeah, I'd, I'd just like to, to maybe to add about about the stadium itself. I mean, you Germans are great at talking about things. What strikes me really uh, when people ask me to to think about or to think out loud about the London games, for instance, in 2012, is the certainly in the public domain the sheer lack of any philosophy. Uh, behind um, behind the stadium design or behind the whole sort of social program of what what the games are about, and in Germany in the sixties, uh, as we found out when we were going through the archives, um, there was certainly no lack of of any philosophical debate about about what what the game should be and the way their architecture. Should, should work. And this, this is a strain that runs all the way through, uh, both pre-war, uh, with the Bauhaus and also the post-war German design movements is, is that uh, when I talk to students about this, I say you have to pinch yourself and, and you have to take seriously that they actually mean all of this seriously. All the, the, the idea of, of, of what, a, what, an, what an architectural space could actually mean. It's not, not a very British way of going about things. Now, what, what I'd like to say to that, that is that, that these didn't remain simple simple words. I, I've been back to the site. Anytime I'm in Munich, I just go out there because it's it's a, it's a very nice place to walk and I feel a certain sort of attachment with it now. But I've been twice in the last couple of years. Once with, with my teenage daughter who didn't want to be there. And the first thing she did was <laughs> pull her camera out and take pictures for the next two hours. She was captivated. And the second time I went about a year later was with uh, a colleague of mine who's a, a fellow medievalist, medieval German scholar, who, who really didn't, I didn't think, uh, approve of, of what I was doing with this book. Um, didn't approve of the fact I was thinking about sport at all. And we've been to a literary archive, um, about an hour away. We were flying back from Munich airport and I said, let's go up to the Munich site. We've got a few hours spare. And he, he came with me with some reluctance. And just as we came over the hill and saw the stadium, he said, he just stood still and said, I get it. Um, you don't need to say anything more. I now understand, which was slightly dramatic, um, but um, it shows really the effect that the, that, that uh, whole site still has on people. Um, I mean, it is—it's nearly forty years old. It'll be forty years next year, and it still looks like one of the architectural wonders of the world. I think it's up there with with uh, Sydney Opera House. So if I can stick with this for one more question, I'm, I'm interested, and this would just be your interpretation. Why is why has the Olympic Park in Munich uh, lasted for 40 years? As, as you said, it, it still is uh, well used as a park. It still has the power to move people aesthetically. But so much of the, the concrete utopia in Western and Eastern Europe of the 60s and 70s, you know, this, this mass of... of uh, housing blocks and just concrete it, it has not lasted for 40 years uh it's 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 just ugly so yeah. why is it that this still works do you think I'll, I'll give you a very quick answer and hand you over to Kai. i mean I, I think that one of the key one of the key elements here is that, that there is not so much concrete there's an awful lot of glass or transparency it's plexiglass roof which cost a fortune um and and there is an awful lot of landscape there's an awful lot of green um, so the motto, for, one of the mottos of the games was uh, Spiele in Grün, and so, uh, which is very compact in German. It means uh, literally games in the green or games within the landscape. And, and that landscape flows in and out underneath, partly underneath the, the glass roof, uh, which is not just over the stain, but also over bits of the, the plazas and pathways. Uh, and, I, and I think the, the, the role of landscape there play, plays a considerable, considerable part in this. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a wonderful artificial landscape, which also imitates in some respects the, you know, the, the landscape of Bavaria. So it's sort of, it's neatly integrated within the city. It's part of the city. It's a kind of landscape that also doesn't sort of deny that Germany is an industrialized country. So here we have the Weimar Bauhaus um, legacy once again, a park that is part of the city, but that at the same time allows people to relax from uh, sort of their daily toils, um, uh, a park that where water, grass, hills, 
uh, a lot of different elements sort of uh, harmonize with each other very, very intelligently. And the park, as Chris said, where uh, sort of certain philosophy, and uh, I think one element was obviously to show to the world, and I hear that, that um, Germany had changed. But on the other, there's this Bauhaus idea, this Bauhaus vision that actually the, the built environment changes how people interact with each other. Uh, I want to ask about... Um Looking at the 72 games within the context of other Olympics, uh, other Olympics of the late 20th century into the 21st century. And, and Chris, you just said that uh, in London right now, there is not a move to create a, uh, a total work of art as the architects and designers in Munich sought to do. Uh, so, But it, it seemed to me in reading the book that even from the way the organizers conducted their bid to the IOC in the 1960s, uh, the planners of the Munich Games set something of a model for future games. Is that a is that an accurate reading? Yes, I think I think it is a, an accurate reading. I, I would look at this in two in two dimensions. One one would be to say that I I think really the the, the two games which stand out in the 20th century are the 1936 games and the 1972 games. Certainly until the late 20th century. Because these are the only two games that really take the Coubertin's notion of the games being a work of art, not just, not just with, by, by throwing in some arts competitions to get the arts component in that way, but actually to treat the whole games as something which, which fit together into something beautiful and which takes sport into, into a different dimension. I think that happens really only twice in the 20th century and it's it's in it's in berlin and it's in munich whether whether uh those two games really want to be seen with all their organizers would like to see them uh, uh taken together in in that way uh on on the other hand um yes munich dolls um dolls act as a as a sort of example for for, for the rest of the rest of the 20th century. It's not an example that was that was readily taken up. I, I think sometimes history gets in the way of things. So the Munich games were meant to be modest games to bring to reduce um, to reduce the Olympic sort of mega event, the gigantism that was being talked about uh, of the early 60s. Uh, um, the Rome games were massive. The Tokyo games were massive. The Mexico City games are massive and, and there were, were concerns within the Olympic movement that the, the games were just getting out of hand and losing a sort of ethical and neatness and compactness as well as a physical compactness. Um, Munich tried to reverse that, not, uh, not just because of the Olympic games, but also because of the message it wanted to portray about Germany. Germany couldn't afford to, to host another mammoth massive games. Um, now what, what happens after, after Munich. I mean, we can bracket out the 76 Olympics because they were already well, well underway in the planning stage when Munich actually happened. But of course, those are games which are renowned for running over budget. But then you, in the, in the early 80s, you get the two, the two huge games of, um, of LA 84, of, of 84 and Moscow in 1980. Um, and, and the idea of games which are somehow, um, neat, compact, modest, but modern, really, I don't think comes comes back at all um, uh, in in the 20th century. I mean, the, the the one big exception I think to that might be Barcelona, which which were, were games which again used the city in a very compact way. Um, um, but beyond that, really, we've had we've had big games after big games, and it's up to London now to say after after Beijing that we that London can't really afford to put games on like that, and we have to return to some sort of modest. So in a way, the, the, the Munich Olympics in terms of 20th century did have a model character, but it wasn't, I would say, wasn't a model that was readily followed by the, the, the cities and states that followed. So your book has very little discussion of the actual athletic events during the, during the games. <laughs> there, are only, there are only a few mentions of Mark Spitz and Olga Corbett. Uh, the controversial men's basketball team final, which is well known in the United States, is not mentioned at all. And the one athlete whom you do write about at length and who appears on the cover of the book is the German long jumper Heidi Rosendahl, uh, someone who would be little, little known uh, outside of Germany. So why did you cho choose her as the athlete to feature on your cover and, and write about at length in the book? 
Okay, well, I, I suppose coming from from my background in, in in literature, I had I had to put up with people saying, you know, saying I was writing more or less a mere sports book, or, <laughs> or, or, or as I referred to a football book or a soccer book uh, for an American audience, uh, which was even more denigrating. Um, and and in a sense, part of part of the project really was to say that uh, okay, this is. This is a book about a sports event, but it's not a it's not a, an inverted commas a sports book. It's about it's about um, uh, German society. It's about history, and and and, and we, were, we were at pains to to do that. I think if we had another chapter, we probably would have written more about more about sport. I mean, the sports angle really comes in in the East German chapter, where we where we look at again, it's the politics behind behind uh, medal winning performances and drug fueled performances. It took our attention there. Heide Rosenthal came in. Um, uh, I let Kai talk about Heide Rosenthal in, in the context of '68, but she came in on the cover simply because I think we saw that that picture. We had we had several uh, candidates for the front cover. One was uh, one of the pictures you might have seen inside the book, which I think captures the essence of the book very 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 well. And it's a it's a group of Bavarians sitting in yeah. in Lidl's and. Looking down into the Olympic Stadium, and it perfectly captures this this idea of of a bridge between tradition and modernity. Um, that was a black and white photograph, and I think uh, initially we wanted a color photograph. So the the, the Rosendahl was a color photograph, um, which ended up not being done in color, but with a sort of tint on it for various technical reasons. But I think that that photograph, uh, which we put up as the other candidate for the front cover really grabbed the press's attention because in a sense they said it's, it's a book it's a it's a picture that that really sums up Germany's leap into the leap into the future. Um and it's a dynamic picture. And um so that's why that's why we that's why we went for it. But Kai might be able to say more about why why Heidi's work or Heidi came up in, in the context of nineteen sixty eight. Yeah. I think I think the press was also wanting to suggest that this is a sports book. <laughs> <laughs> that there's much more sports in it than there actually is. I think the, the other point about Heide Rosendahl is that she's a kind of sort of emblematic figure, as Chris already pointed out, for um, the changing youth um, in the 1960s through her look, through her John Lennon glasses, through her socks, through the sort of ease with which she moved um, and that she was a kind of, uh, she was, she's obviously um, a very um, successful um, athlete. She, she won the long jump. She took the silver um, in uh, pentathlon or heptathlon at the time. Sorry, I don't, get, I don't quite remember. And she, and she also ran in the four, uh, in the, in, in the four, uh, how do you call it? This is why I'm not a I don't really know enough about sports, but she, <laughs> she, beat, she beat Heide, she beat uh, um, in, in the final of the four, how, how do you call it? We can just say she was a sprinter and leave it at that. Yeah, she was, and she was also, obviously, yes, you're right, she was, she was also a sprinter, but she symbolized, um, a, uh, she symbolized the West Germany that loved to be successful, that loved to win, but that wouldn't sort of uh, break the rules in order to win, and that would also actually um, be happy if others won who were who, who were better. So in, in a way, she she represented actually a West Germany as opposed to a sort of medal of this uh, East Germany. Uh, at the same time, um, there is an ambivalence about this woman too because uh, we tracked down her MA thesis, uh, which is kind of unfair in a way to hold, <laughs> hold that to hold that against her. But in some ways, the uh, the, the the words that she uses in that MA thesis actually resemble very much the first page of the Olympic report, a very conservative vision of uh, Germany and its special relationship to the, to the Olympics and to sport is represented there as well. We have a kind of ambiguity in this, in this uh, person as well, her public image vis-a-vis -vis, um, her academic work. Now again, um, it's unfair to hold whatever what somebody writes at age 19 or 20 against them. 40 years later. Um, so in a way, um, she's important in representing that change. She, she also represents a sort of a safe side of 1968 in a way, um, the, the kind of uh, a fashionable side of 1968, which isn't politically too radical, but nevertheless, which represents a kind of relaxed modernity. 
And in, in that sense, that leap from the past into the future, which is actually, um, uh, which, which Chris mentioned is actually a very good way of, of describing this um, title photograph. Now, we do need to discuss the terrorist attack of September 5th, 1972. And as you point out in the introduction, this is an inseparable part of the Munich Games, and, is, and it has been given even greater attention in recent years through the documentary film One Day in September and Steven Spielberg's film Munich. So let me ask first, how did you, as, as you were doing the work, how did you approach this event, which is so widely known and widely studied? Okay, one of one of the main uh, obstacles uh, to to this chapter really is getting getting information um, or getting new information. There is plenty of information, some of it disinformation, uh, in the public domain. There have been several books specifically on on that issue. Uh, and as historians trying to write a new book, um, you don't want to end up simply simply regurgitating what has already been. Uh, what has already been put in the public domain. At the same time, um, you you also have to cover the cover the ground because it's it's what's expected and it's, it's a major part of the story. And at the same time, you've got to go to the trouble to check up a lot of the claims that um, that have been made in the public domain and in print already. So, I mean, a great deal of work went into that chapter that doesn't actually appear in it. Um, facts were checked um, left, right, and centre. Uh, and, and, uh, we, we stuck with, with, with the facts that, that we felt we could go with. We, we got some new facts. Not all the archives will open. I think in the end we came, we came to the conclusion that, that we think we've got most of the story. I mean, that's, that's a gut feeling having looked at a, a lot of things and also not seen some of the, some of the files which are still locked up in archives and not are still not publicly available. So there was an, a lot of work in that way. The other, the other way to get, to get rounded to try and see something new was to look, was to look at the, the diplomatic context. Uh, so the, the terrorist attack in, in that chapter is really framed by the, the changing diplomatic relations between Germany, Israel and the Arab world, uh, in the early seventies and particularly, particularly in the year 1972. Uh, and towards the end of the year, because the, the Arab League had, had broken off relations, and most of the Arab states had broken off relations with, uh, with Germany, um, in the mid 60s when they found that the Federal Republic had been delivering tanks to Israel. And in the course of, in the course of, uh, the early 70s, and particularly in 72, the Arab League was beginning to pick up diplomatic relations with West Germany again. And that had to be very carefully choreographed because Germany had, in inverted commas, and in many ways, in real ways, a special relationship with, with Israel. So there is a diplomatic triangle, uh, in, in play in, in the 19, in 1972. And right in the middle of this, from left to field, uh, basically a bomb goes off, uh, um, with this, with this attack in the Olympic village and creates real, really diplomatic chaos. So that was, that was, those were, that was fresh information, new information. A new contextualization, which we thought we could use to bring uh, a different angle to the story, having having gone around and checked up all the other all the other facts that we had we had to check out. Yeah, I think um, one thing to add, perhaps to um, to what Chris said, is obviously uh, any book of 1972 will have to include a chapter on the terrorist attack. At the same time, I think our book, uh, the other chapters, are an attempt to save the event simply from being associated only and exclusively with the terrorist attack, which seemed to be a trend um, through films like uh, uh, Spielberg's Munich or through uh, uh, documentaries um, uh, like, um, like that of Kevin MacDonald. And um, uh, the problem with this is it seemed to us it's simply uh, historically unfair if you uh, just look at the event from it's sort of terrible end point, if you wish, although one must say the games obviously continued. And secondly, um, uh, it seems, um, it, it seems necessary in order to dispel some of the myths that uh, are created by uh, a documentary such as that of, of McDonald's. I think the, the most important point here for us was to, um, uh, to discover that, um, uh, when you look at that documentary, you'll hear, um, Michael Douglas's voice uh, 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 saying explicitly that uh, that the GDR was involved in 
that that was the attack. And there's no evidence for this whatsoever. We could find no evidence of this whatsoever. And uh, so you have to, as a strong debate, you have to disprove kind of the, the myths that are created by this myth that actually um, migrate from films into the historiography. You find these actually in serious history books that all of a sudden the GDR was involved. Why? Because Michael Douglas said so in that documentary. <laughs> And, uh, and there's no evidence for this whatsoever. Um, so um, what we try to do is simply to look at the evidence that was available. A lot of evidence was actually made available to us. Uh, we should also say there were no attempts whatsoever at hiding any of the evidence. There's another sort of subtext, uh, subtext here in some of the work done by MacDonald and others, which is um, the sense that Germans will always try to hide their responsibility for this event and they will make, not make uh, archival materials accessible. That is not true. We were given those. We were given the taxes um, as much as was, I think, possible and doable. Uh, at the same time, there's no doubt that um, uh, the Germans try to um, uh, hush the whole affair up and try to keep their responsibility, try not to acknowledge their responsibility. So let me ask one question uh, coming from Spielberg's film Munich. And uh, I'm thinking of the scene with the, with the showdown at the airport, which is, is, you know, this example of Hollywood counterterrorism action where you have the, the lights go on on the airport tarmac and you have these sharpshooters who are cold, faceless sharpshooters coldly picking off the black September gunman. But one thing that struck me in reading your account of the kidnapping and then the counterattack at the airport and you use the term incompetence, the incompetence of the German authorities. So, so the reality of what happened was, was much different than uh, what you get in the film. Absolutely. I mean, the, the incompetence of the German authorities is stunning, staggering. Um, there's no doubt there was no preparation for this, for this event and they, they were simply unprepared and they weren't uh, able to, uh, to, to liberate the hostages. Um, at the same time, this was a 9-11 moment, if you wish. That is, nobody was expecting this to, to come, and there might have been only the Israelis themselves uh, being able to, to liberate those hostages. Not the Americans, not the French, not the British. And um, uh, I think uh, that, that German incompetence, there's no, no doubt about it, and I think everybody would admit this now. Um, but um, at the same time, um, this is, um, impossible to uh, this is impossible to deny. Yes, I think I think that was a very important. Um, I remember I remember having a having a chat with a military historian uh, at a friend's house over over at a party, and and I just just talking about this, and we were really working on on digging up you know what what the authorities had been expecting. They were expecting uh, in in the natural run of things, they would have been expecting. Uh, a hostage taking and an air, an aeroplane or something like that. That was pretty common at the, at the time. Um, but they weren't expecting this. And he, he, he pointed out, I think the military historian said that, that Munich was actually the turning point in the history of the British SAS. So the scenes that, um, I'm not sure whether American, uh, listeners will remember, but certainly British li listeners would of, of the SAS, uh, abseiling down, um, an embassy wall in London and crashing through. It was the Iranian embassy in 1980. Um, and, and rescuing, uh, um, nearly all the hostages without any, without any injury. Uh, that would simply not have been possible without, without Munich. Uh, it was, it was that point that basically the SA, the British SAS was a, was a desert storm sort of operation troop. And they moved over to urban, uh, anti-guerrilla urban, uh, measures at, at that point, and, and that—that's where history is important. You need to—you need to look and see what what was possible at the time, and, and judge events uh, against against uh, against those sorts of yardsticks. Having said that, the Germans were pretty incompetent as well. So there are two sides of the story. I'd just like to add one one thing. I think that the scene that you're referring to in the Spielberg movie, if I, if I remember it correctly, comes towards the end. Mm -hmm. Where the, where the, the protagonist is, he's meant to be a sort of anti- Oh, that is the worst scene, one of the worst scenes in, in film is, history, in my opinion. <laughs> this should be one, this should be, yeah, this is, this is the scene where he's ha having sex with his wife. Yes. He's trying to make love to her, but it's actually a sort of robotic sort of sexual act, which then gets cut with the, with, I think the machine yeah. guns going back and forward. I think it should go on record. This is the worst scene in film history. <laughs> 
Uh, well, we can end our discussion of, of terrorism on that lighter, lighter <laughs> note then. Um, so I want to ask a question about the legacy of the 72 games, and this gets away from, from what you wrote about in the book. And so uh, we already talked about the shadow of the 36 games on the Munich Olympics, which came 36 years after the Berlin games. And uh, so I was wondering how or if the games of 72 had influence on the next major international sporting, or it's not the next major event, but but the major international sporting event that came 34 years later in Germany, the 2006 World Cup. So did the organizers of, of that World Cup look back to Munich, or were they still dealing with the legacy of the Berlin Olympics in 36? Okay, I'll, I, Kai and I might have different different views. This I, I think we won't, but um, but, but you never know. So I'll, I my uh, my opinion on this would be, would be that there is no connection whatsoever. Um, that institutional memory is is very short. Um, that that uh, that little little advice is passed on from from one group from one group to another. Um, we, we saw this in, in, in looking at, at 72 games. There was very, very little uh, advice passed, for instance, between the Munich organizing team as they were organizing and those who were taking Germany to the World, to the world Fair in, in, um, in, in Japan, if I recall. Um, so you would think okay. that there would be, there would, you would think there would be, um, you know, close tie up. Uh, between agencies representing the country. And, and at the time itself, there wasn't in, in, in our experience. And I think really between, between 76 and 2006, we are dealing with completely, completely different worlds and also dealing with different sports. I mean, the, the setting up of a, the running of a World Cup is a different, it's just a different animal from running an Olympic Games. Not least because it's, it's the Olympics run on symbolism and, and football doesn't run on symbolism at all. One one colleague once once when asked about this said, "Well, it's quite simple. Why that's the reason? Uh, football. Everyone likes football, and no one likes the sports that take place. The Olympics, the Olympics. <laughs> you know, there are historical reasons for that. Um, I think one one review that we had criticised the fact we didn't make a connection between seventy two and two thousand and six. Um, I, I would simply say to that that they they are they are." Different worlds, really, um, and I don't think there were there were many concrete connections between the organisation and, and both. I just see them completely separate. But Kai might have a different a different view on it, a different take. Yeah, I think this is a little bit based on my on my own very recent research. But there are some connections. But you're right; they are um, relatively tenuous. I think that the main point to make is really that there's a great difference between football and organising a FIFA World Cup and organising. Um, Olympic Games, so the connections are relatively small. Um, if anything, um, I must say though that I just interviewed the chief organizer of 2006, not Beckenbauer, who was the face of the event, but um, not Franz Beckenbauer, but Horst R. Schmidt. And Horst R. Schmidt um, had actually worked for the <laughs> for the Munich Organizing Committee, so he had uh, he had some experience, and he actually started his career. Um, working for, for the Munich 1972 um, organizing committee. Then he was uh, a part of the 1974 World Cup organizing committee and then eventually rose to the top um, in 2006. But um, the connections are relatively tenuous and relatively small. And that's basically because um, organizing the Olympics is, is, is a different task. You, know, you look at one city, you don't look at many cities, you look at one stadium, you don't look at many stadiums. You look at uh, one sport when you when you organize a footballing event, and not at the sort of totality of um, Olympic sports. Um, I think if one wanted to construct um, a sort of a narrative leading from '72 on to uh, 2006, it might be based on say displays of national identity. You could say that. Very little of this could be seen in 1972, and a little bit more could be seen in 1974 when Germany became a FIFA World Cup champion, and much more of sort of uh, sort of positive displays of German national identity, sort of good natured patriotism, could be seen on occasion of the 2006 World Cup. So we're almost out of time, and I'll ask you both: uh, What are you working on now? 
uh, I'm actually writing a follow-up project. This is why I mentioned the sort of 19, I mentioned the 74 World Cup on it on a few occasions. Uh, I'm writing a history of the 74 World Cup as a sort of next mega event following on um, from the 1972 games because there's no um, no real history of any World Cup in Britain yet, perhaps with the exception of one on, um, on, the, on the French World Cup by Laurent Dubois. Yeah. Um, there isn't really much in terms of World Cup history and um, uh, this is uh, this seems an interesting project because in some ways a big contrast in terms of the effort that goes in there and in terms of the sort of philosophical underpinnings of a, of a sport that, that doesn't have any philosophical underpinnings, at least in, <laughs> in the German imagination, but which is a sort of proletarian sport, football. And um, uh, this is also obviously a very, very big event for Germany, but it costs much less 60 million as opposed to 2 billion Deutschmark. And... Uh, uh, um, uh, Obviously, uh, a way for cities, for other cities, to get um, to get football stadiums and another mega event, but without the kind of sort of um, power of the imagination standing behind it. Uh, but it's also well, it's a sort of uh, it's, it's it's also interesting because of the history of FIFA, and you know we we, we had these recent discussions about how um, how the get how how FIFA World Cup. Um, were given to certain places and uh, and uh, a system of uh, of FIFA that started, I think, in the 1970s. And the 1974 World Cup is sort of, a, I think, a crucial moment for um, for the history of FIFA World Cup, and that would be sort of one of the key the key arguments of my of my book. And I have to imagine that you're you're going to write about the matches. Yes, uh, to some extent, certainly, yes, <laughs> much more than. Um, <laughs> Much more than in the book on Olympics. Much more sports in there. And Chris, what are you working on now? Well, I'm I'm going back to be, being schizophrenic. So I've I've got two major projects at the moment. One is uh, a, a new literary history of the uh, of the 12th century for German, uh, which I think you probably want to hear less about than the other project, which I've which I've been developing. Uh, uh, this last year, and we'll be working on over the next three or four years, which is a, a history of sport and media in in Germany um, over uh, four decades, from, from roughly about 1920 to about 1960. The, the reason I, I was interested in in that was that I felt with the, the 72 book, um, obviously some of it looked back to, to 1936, and some of it looked back to the traditions of German sport. But I, I felt that having having sort of dipped my toe very firmly in this water, I wanted to go back in, and, in a way, start at the beginning. Now, 1920s isn't, isn't really the beginning, but the 1920s is the beginning, really, of a boom time for sport in Germany. It's where it really all takes off. Um, and when I when I sort of looked around, I, I was very, very surprised to find that there was extremely little on the way that sport interacted with the media. So we have we have a number of large studies and and and, and a great number of essays, say, on Benny Riefenstahl's uh, Olympic film from 1936. But apart from that, um, there is really surprisingly little about Germany and, and the media. So that's what I wanted to look at, and I wanted to to test really a thesis, which was which is a very simple one. Um, which is that uh, I don't think people go out and do sport or watch sport because of politics. Um, and uh, if you read a, uh, any sort of general history of sport in Germany, it's always told in political terms. It's always told about a free-rolling sort of cabaret-style 1920s, which then goes into a, a period of, of fascism under the National Socialists, and then it, it, it bifurcates uh, in the late 40s into... Into a very dull and boring, but worthy Federal Republic of Germany versus an East Germany, which eventually uh, becomes a sort of uh, a drug-fueled machine. So, um, I, I really wanted to to use the sport and media angle uh, in in two ways. One, one to fill in a lot of the necessary gaps that, that sit behind these these big works and essays in Lenny Riefenstahl, for instance, and also really to test out a a way of writing a history of German sport, which which obviously will include politics, but will also try and get away from it in some way. All right. Well, I want to thank you both for for appearing on the program. Uh, this was a great book, and and I'll tell you that uh, I know it's been 
widely acclaimed. And I'll tell you that uh, with a number of the guests I've had on the program after I finished the interview, I, I asked them, what, what books do you recommend? And uh, my guests have recommended your book as, as you know, one of the best examples of recent writing in sports history. So congratulations on a, uh, uh, a highly praised book. It was uh, a, an excellent work, uh, not only from the perspective of sports history, but from the perspective of, of European history. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bruce. Thank you, Bruce. You've been listening to an interview with Kai Schiller and Christopher Young about their book, The 1972 Munich Olympics and the Making of Modern Germany, published by the University of California Press in 2010. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers more than 70 channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from Buddhist studies to economics. If you like what you heard here, please visit the Facebook page for New Books and Sports, where you can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week.